Welcome to VSI, Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution and Action. I'm Randall Hayes. A few weeks ago, a fellow named Gene Marks, who described himself as a short, balding, middle-aged white accountant, published an essay called, If I Were a Poor Black Kid, on the website of the business magazine Forbes. It was a sort of laundry list of do-it-yourself educational plans. He basically wanted kids to leverage computer technology to bypass bad school systems, to train themselves to be successful. And the blogosphere went crazy over it, mostly against it. I'll post a few very late links on our own website. During Christmas break, I sat down over the phone with three young ladies who have actual experience with these kinds of educational issues. Tasneem Pierce is a graduate student at Michigan State working at the University of Washington. Uh, she's posted about her scientific work to the Beacon website, and I'll link to that on the blog. But what she doesn't write about is her personal path to success. Uh, she's from a conservative Muslim family, actually a lot like the conservative Christians that I grew up with, who didn't much want women getting educated or working outside the home. So, like, when I was a kid, I didn't really know, like, what's the point of having a good education if, um, you know, like, where would I go with it? If, like, why should I be working so hard if I don't really know what an education can do for me and if I see, you know, my parents doing just fine, or not really that fine, but they're doing all right, and so it's really hard for, like, a kid in that situation to just really understand that education will lead to somewhere better than their current situation, because they just don't really have the role models. I mean, all I thought you could do with an education was become a teacher, or a doctor, or a lawyer, and that was pretty much it. We had previously had a long and interesting talk about exactly these kinds of issues, which I stupidly forgot to record. But I remembered that she was interested in education and that she had personal experience with the bootstrapping scenario that Jean Marks described. So I invited her back on the show to my conversation with two other young biologists who are working to improve science education in rural Michigan. Liz Schultheis, and Melissa Chelvik. I will also post more about their work at the Kellogg Biological Station on the website. We'll mostly be talking about two basic problems. One, teachers don't know much about science. And two, scientists don't know much about teaching. KBS has, at least I think, a good model for addressing both of those problems at the same time. This is Liz. At the Kellogg Biological Station, we actually have like a mentoring series where people from different careers come in and talk to the graduate students who are getting, you know, masters and PhDs, but really only have advisors that are on the track that are becoming professors. So even, you know, even we who are seeking higher degrees and stuff don't really see what's outside of the path that we're on right now. Just thinking of the way I was trained as a scientist. Right, I had some access to medical, to the medical side of things, but really all of my training was for research. Right, how much training did you guys actually get to teach before you started your your work at the 
Kellogg Biological Station. This is Melissa. Um, I actually, my first year of grad school, I was a TA for an undergrad um, intro bio course at MSU, and prior to that, I had pretty much zero teaching experience. So I was rudely awakened to um, classroom management and things like that. So by the time I had joined the K-12 partnership, I had at least one year of teaching undergrads. What about you, Liz? Um, so my, all of my teaching experience just came from working with my mentor teacher in GK-12. So like the first couple times I was in the classroom, I definitely didn't know anything about classroom management. and. I would just sort of mimic what, what, what my partner teacher was doing, or she would interrupt me sometimes, you know, and, and give me direction about if the kids were kind of getting confused about what I was saying. So, yeah, just working for a year in GK-12 gave me the teaching experience I have. But you actually did have a mentor. Yeah, we all, all the GK-12 fellows get a mentor teacher in their first year and second year, or as long as they're in the program. But that first year, you know, it's, you're getting a lot of help from that direction and a lot less, you know, getting to share your research in the beginning. What about you, Neem? I know you're mostly a researcher. Have you had any, any training? Um, we had a day of TA training um, through my program, but that was about it. <laughs> so one day. Yeah, and it was... It's okay. When I got my first uh, you know, teaching job at the community college, they said, here's the key to the room, and here's the textbook. And here's a big box of overhead transparencies. That was my training. How much do you guys actually do at, at KBS of sort of educating the teachers as well? This is Liz. Um, so the, the partnership that a GK-12 fellow and a partner teacher has uh, it, through our program is great because it, you know, it trades back and forth between the teacher mentoring the graduate student how to become a better teacher and how to do classroom management, and then the graduate student gets the opportunity to share like research and science with the teacher, and so a lot of our sharing with about research and science is just in the classroom and the lessons that we prepare, but we also have teacher workshops where the teachers will come to KBS and learn lessons that they can then bring back to their classroom. This is Melissa. Um, the partnership actually started in 1999, and <laughs> the, uh, the goal of the partnership was to educate the teachers on more current science than they had probably been exposed to you know, since their degree. But it has evolved since then to be more of this fellow mentor um, partnership. But they still do get a lot of science just by coming to the year-long workshops, we always have plenaries, uh, plenary speakers who come and talk about their research, and so it's a good opportunity for the teachers to learn more about science. The real problem here is how unusual the K-12 partnership is. Most scientists and teachers are in exactly the same situation as Mr. Marx's poor kid of any color. Here's Tasneem describing, describing her struggles to find a way to connect with teachers in her local school system. You're kind yeah. of in the situation of, of having to find your own resources. How are you going about doing that? Well, I've been trying to find the resources through the university itself and seeing what they do for different minority programs and 
um, what already exists. And I know that they have a um, bring your, like, classmates or kids to labs uh, day in the spring. And so different classrooms come around and they learn about science by visiting all the labs. And so you do kind of get to interact with the teachers and talk to them. And I know that one of the teachers ended up having a couple people from my lab go into their class and teach the kids about bacteria. They got to um, put their fingerprints on LV plates and see what grew and try washing their hands and see what grew after that and stuff like that, which was very cool. And I wish that more teachers had that invested interest to, you know, go out and get resources that they don't have on their own, but, you know, that are kind of available at the university to um, access grad students and be able to say, hey, can you come in for a day and can you come and talk to us? And so now I'm going to try to see if I can find other teachers that I can kind of coordinate that with and see if, you know, I can go into classes, especially classes on um, in some of the lower income schools and be able to be like, look, this is science, this is really cool, this is um, applicable to your life in these kind of ways. And just show people like, hey, I grew up in a similar place and this is what I'm doing with my life and this is why I have a college degree and this is where I'm going with it and these are the cool things that I get to do. But and it's, so the, it's very hard getting all of this stuff coordinated and organized. Which brings up a cultural issue within the culture of science. One that renders the rampant criticism of Mr. Marx kind of ironic. Scientists have this tendency to make tools available for free and then wonder why teachers, who have very little scientific training, fail to use them. It's perfectly clear why. These tools take time to master, and teachers are busy doing their own jobs, four or five classes a day, which mostly involve classroom management, parenting the children of people who are at work, doing their own very specialized jobs. Businesses in a consumer culture like ours don't just make tools available. They sell them aggressively. We have a case study right here within Beacon the digital evolution environment Avita Ed, which Neem also uses for her research. One of the things I've really encountered with Avita Ed is teachers would love to use that, but they actually have a hard time being able to get started and learn how to use it themselves and then decide, oh, I guess I can use this with my class. If they're having problems using it themselves, they're less likely to you know, let their class use it because their class will probably have even more problems. Now, Beacon is a little unusual in that there definitely are people working very hard on the kinds of educational infrastructure that a program like Avita Ed needs. But it's really not very many compared with the number of people using Avita for research. And I personally don't think that situation will change as long as we scientists wait for someone else to do it. Maybe Apple's new ebook initiative will be as disruptive to the educational industry as the iPod has been to the music industry. Or maybe the NSF's requirements to make data publicly available will unleash a torrent of educational creativity. But I think the real answer is summed up in Liz's critique of Mr. Marx's article. So if I would think for this article that like 
you know, it's kind of not realistic to expect the young kids to go out and search for for mentors, but maybe if he wanted, if he thought they needed mentors, he should go into their neighborhoods and, you know, and be an, yeah, set an example for them. Yeah, if we want something to change, we have to change it. Of course, she can say that without sounding like a hypocrite because she's doing it. What are you doing? We'd love to hear about it and maybe give you a bit of press. You can reach us at bsi.beacon at gmail.com or leave a public comment on the webpage at variationselectioninheritance.podbean.com. If it's a really short comment, you can even tweet it to VSI Beacon. That's all the time we have for this week. Tune back in. VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, with editing help from Lauren Branch at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. We are funded by the National Science Foundation, but don't blame them for anything I say. Thanks for listening.